There's so much in the news about mental health, and especially in recent weeks, how we really look after it in times of turbulence. But have you ever thought about how your home could support your mental well-being? Well, today we're going to talk about just that with Professor Sadie Morgan of DRMM Architects, who founded the Quality of Life Foundation, and Ben Channon, architect at Asale Architecture and author of Happy by Design, a guide to architecture and mental well-being. Sadie and Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, Nikki. Thanks for having me. So, Sadie, I'm, I'm going to start with you. You've spent much of your career campaigning for people to give more attention to how their surroundings make them feel. Why is it so important? I think when you're an architect or designer, it's very easy to sort of become very focused on the building itself and how you design it, what it looks like. But the reality of all the things that we do and design is that they affect the way that people live and work and play and feel. And so for me, that's one of the most important things that I think we need to consider. So Um, I've set up the Quality of Life Foundation on the understanding that if we could actually work out what it is that improves people's quality of life, um, and that's, you know, in relation to their built environment, then if we included that in all the things that we design and all the developments that we design, then that has got to be a really good starting point. So if you're an architect, you assume that that might be what it looks like, you know, does it have a pitch roof or a flat roof? Well, no, I think there's there's much more to uh, understanding how our environment affects us. And I'm sure that um, we're going to hear a, a lot more about that today. But for me, it's really about really understanding what are those things that matter and asking not, not the professionals what matters, because often that's what matters to them, but actually asking the people who live and work and play in the developments that we design in the houses that we design to make sure that if we are trying to build many more homes, as the government has asked us to over the next few years, that we are we are actually building homes. We're not just building numbers, and, and but we're, we're making sure that those homes are communities and places where people actually want to live and that really do improve their quality of life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that we should ask people that are actually living in this, the homes to start off with. Ben, when did you become interested in the matter of mental health at home and why? So uh, for me, it also kind of started in my mid-20s, really. Uh, so what was that? Probably six or seven years ago. Um, and I just finished architecture school and I was sort of working probably harder than I should have been um, at the time. And not not that surprisingly, perhaps, started to have an impact on, on my mental health. And um, I actually had a couple of quite challenging years with my mental health where I struggled with anxiety. Um, and I had some CBT for that. Um but thankfully, sort of came out the other side of it. But um, for me, it just made me really interested in the subject. It, it wasn't something I'd really come across or I'm kind of embarrassed to say it wasn't something I'd really thought about that much before. But obviously, going through that experience firsthand really um, was quite a shock to the system and made me kind of reassess everything I was doing as an architect. And, and lots of those things Sadie was talking about, you know, the impact of our, our home on us, the, the impact of that building as a home, as a place, um, and, and how buildings were affecting my mental health on a daily basis. It became something I was really interested in. So I suppose it does come back to that idea of, you know, quality of life. And for me, I, I just wanted to try and really get a better understanding of the fact that buildings do change how we feel every day both our physical health and our mental health um, and, and I wanted to try and get a handle on that really which is what led to me writing my book. 
That makes perfect sense. And um, it's often the way, isn't it, that something in our personal lives uh, affects our professional lives. And so then we have to follow it, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if if it's something that has happened to you personally, there's kind of a passion there and there's a drive. So um, for me, in a weird way, most people probably don't talk about health problems, physical or mental, as, as being a bit of a blessing. But in a strange way, it was for me because it's given me this passion to kind of pursue this issue and, and try and improve it as well within the world of architecture. Yeah, that's wonderful. You know, out of adversity often comes positivity. And, and you know, when it comes to this awful uh, time that we're in because of COVID, I think there's many things that we can learn from this experience, particularly those of us who've been cooped up at home. It really has brought into focus uh, those things that really are important and matter and so I think that that same passion that Ben talks about, you know, having experienced something that profoundly changes the way that you think, I, I would hope that as a nation, the architects and designers can harness the, that ex- exact same sort of all those feelings that everybody is having now in relation to how they live and, and, the, and the understanding the, the effects that that, that that has on them. I think we could really use that information and think about how we can improve our world coming out of this epidemic yeah i think that's that's definitely true and you know i've spent the last four or five years trying to convince people that um buildings affect our mental health uh with mixed results thankfully people are coming around to it more now and more and more people are on board with the kind of quite obvious truth that our buildings do affect both how we behave and how we feel but you know i think covid has really made everyone step up just just look up sorry and, and realize that absolutely um the, the the space in which we spend our waking hours um and to some extent our sleeping hours plays a role in how we feel absolutely sadie i wanted to ask you actually how are homes built currently in ways that are detrimental to our well-being i'd rather look at it in a different way actually i'd rather talk about the things that are good about buildings so what what is it that improves your quality of life and and then look at why not having those is is important so i think there are lots of things that make a big difference about how you feel about being in, in inside space whether or not you um have access to the outside you know how many of us at this moment in time who are lucky enough to have any balcony or terrace have, have really begun to understand how important that is. Um, making sure that you have um, good light, making sure that you have uh, different views, you know, not just one view, but you have different aspects so you're able to perhaps um, have some variety. Making sure that you have places where you can feel that you have some private space within your home. Um, and how do you engender community, I think, is if you step out of your home and you think about how developments are put together, you know, how might you encourage people to meet and speak and talk to each other? And you can do that very simply if you share a stair core, giving, making sure that you have an identity to that stair core so it's different from the others, so that you feel that you all, those people who share that stair core, have something in common making sure that you only have small numbers of people that can use that stair core so that you can build relationships. You know where to go for a cup of sugar or a pint of milk. Um, Making sure that any outside space has uh, opportunity for sitting quietly and reflectively or playing if you're a child or 
making sure that if you're inside, um, you know, as a parent, you can look out of the window and see that your child is playing safely somewhere. There are there are lots and lots of positive things that we can do within our buildings to make sure that we have those types of connections. So Ben, as Sadie was saying there, uh, she was talking about some of the things that architects are responsible for when it comes to the design of buildings. But what about for people who are just living in a space how important is being able to control your environment to your mental health? Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely huge. We, we know that control as a concept is really important to, to humans and to, to good mental health. So that's control over everything, you know, not, ju- not just our environment and our home, but things like control over our routine and our schedule and over our diet. You can basically take the concept of control and apply it to anything we do. If you strip that control away from people, then what, what happens is you get people who feel disempowered, who feel helpless. And you can imagine that the, the sort of emotional impacts that that has on people. So our role as architects, I think, is to design buildings which do give people more control and do empower them. But as you say, there's there's things that people can do within their own home to to try and get a little bit more control back. So one of the things I've been encouraging people to do during lockdown is actually to kind of do a bit of an assessment of their own space, assessment of their home, uh, maybe their living and working space. Because what it's important, I think, for people to remember is that our homes are serving many, many functions at the moment. They're, they're working for us in so many ways that they were probably never designed to, to you know, they weren't designed to be used in those ways. Um, so, for example, for most of us now, I, I imagine for 40 or 50 hours a week, they're, they're acting as offices. And, and when we moved into our homes, we set them up to be generally spaces for relaxation, socialization, not spaces for working. So... One good thing that you can do straight away is just to look at the layout of your space and say, okay, let's actually realise this space is being used for 80% of the day as a workspace. Do I need to move things around? Maybe I should put my desk near a window so I can access that natural light and those important views out that Sadie was talking about and and just kind of reimagine spaces and take control back over them. And similarly, it might be that actually you, you try to change the way the space feels at night. So perhaps you push loads of furniture back during the daytime, pull it back out in the evening. Even something as simple as drawing the curtains and lighting some candles in the evening, it's just a way to kind of take control of the environment and change the way that it feels so that you're signaling to your brain, right, we're going from uh, work mode to relaxation mode now. And just, you know, really actually don't let the space sort of run you, but, you know, you control the space. Yeah, I've never thought about it like that, but that's brilliant advice. Ben, I've got another question, actually. I think people sometimes worry that focusing on the aesthetics of a home is a bit shallow. I've always sort of chastised myself for caring too much about decor and cushions and things. I don't know where that comes from, but I I know that other people can feel a bit the same about it. But in your book, you talk about how aesthetics really do affect our mental health. So I was wondering what some examples of that might be. Yeah, there's well, there's loads of research out there that shows a really strong connection between aesthetics and mental health. And, you know, when people question this, um, I've got a slide in my TEDx talk actually basically showing um, a kind of quite ugly um, apartment complex versus a really aesthetically pr- pretty one, one that I think the average person in the population would, would judge as being a very attractive one. And we know that when people live in more attractive places, they tend to feel better. They have, you know, that has knock on impacts on mental health. But it kind of goes deeper than that. We know, for example, patterns and colours from nature can have an impact on us. There's this this phenomenon called biophilia, which you may have heard of. But basically, it's the idea that 
you know, we, we really evolved as part of nature, although people kind of, it's quite easy to forget that now, in, certainly if you live in a big city in the 21st century, um, but we evolved as a part of nature. And so we naturally find nature, whether that's plants, water, animals, it's very, it's quite relaxing for us and it can have all kinds of impacts, you know, boosting our mood, even like watching nature documentaries, very weirdly has been shown to relax people, induce this sense of awe and make people feel more positive. So it can really be used to combat things like depression and anxiety. So, so bringing in patterns and colours from nature can have a big impact. But yeah, I think it's really interesting what you said, that there's almost a sense of kind of shaming or shallowness in focusing on aesthetics. And I wonder if to a certain extent that's maybe kind of been born out of modernism where everything was really stripped mm. back and everything was, t- we were told, you know, things should be pure and minimal, that kind of um, that Marie Kondo approach where it's like get rid of everything that you don't, really really need to have but actually um there's a really good book by ingrid fessel lee called i think it's called joy or, or joyful and you know the idea that actually things and images and colors can bring us joy they can create moments of happiness in our day things that put a smile in, on our face um, we, we know that unfortunately because of evolution uh, we're hotwired to remember negative things more strongly than positive things just because you know, it was important to us to remember what a saber-toothed tiger looked like and smelled like and sounded like. So we remember negative memories and hold on to those much more strongly. So I think absolutely it's very important that we we do pack these positive aesthetics into our homes. Yeah, definitely. I'm definitely going to rethink my uh, fear of cushions, I think, after <laughs> having this discussion. Sadie, Ben mentioned there about bringing nature into the home. And I know that you mentioned earlier, you were talking about the dire need people have felt for having a balcony or a terrace space in recent weeks. What can people do if they don't have those kinds of spaces to feel better inside? Well, first of all, it's opening windows. I mean, it's super simple, you know, making sure that when the sun comes out or when there's an opportune moment that you open the window and you feel that connection to fresh air or a change of air. I think that, you know, you talk about cushions, well, plants. Mm. I've always had plants, even when they were super unfashionable. Um, I have <laughs> to admit, I did I did get rid of my spider plant, which uh, when I was a kid, everybody had. So really thinking about having something living um, in your homes, mm. you know, I'm, I personally, if ever I see a plastic flower, it's thrown out you know it has to be living and breathing and I think that that's really important because you have to care for plants um says she who kills most of them by overwatering them because I overlove my plants <laughs> um but but having something that you're responsible for that that gives something back I think is also important so um even if you're not lucky enough to have a terrace or you're not lucky enough to have a balcony even um then you know being able to open the windows perhaps having some plants on your windowsill just to sort of emphasize um a, a connection between you and nature uh, I, I think is totally possible to do and if you can have uh, plants real living plants in your home I think that that goes a long way actually to helping with that connection to nature yeah absolutely and the stats on that are quite amazing actually I was reading a a study the other day which um, it was looking at things like productivity and, and learning with plants so it was saying for example that um just by putting kind of small yucca potted plant type things in offices they saw like huge boosts in product in staff productivity we're sort of talking like 20 percent plus 
And similarly, if you, if you do um, studies with school kids in terms of memory and recall, just putting a small potted plant on the desk in front of them um, while they do these memory tests, you actually saw better recall and memory skills. So we know that s- somehow nature and plants, they tap into this quite primal thing inside us. So yeah, really is quite a powerful tool. Yeah, they definitely found it. Sadie, I wanted to ask you about light as well, because obviously when people are talking about properties, they're obsessed with the light in them. But what does a well-lit space look like? Can you have too much light in your house? That's a really good question. I think you can have too much glare. I don't think you can ever have too much light, but you can definitely have too much glare. So when light is even, uh, and that's not to say it can't change with the day, you know, there's nothing better than perhaps having a sort of shaft of sunlight coming through in the morning as the sun tracks uh, disappears, because you know, you know, maybe then you can take your bowl of cereal and sit in the sunlight, you know, in the morning. Um, so I think light is very emotive in the way that it changes and, and having good light is something that's very, very important, particularly as our, our homes have become our offices, because, you know, when you're working at computers or writing or doing work that's intensive, then you definitely need very good light. You know, there's, there's a good reason why people who read a lot under the covers are all wearing glasses at my age. <laughs> so, so it, yeah, it is, it is very important, but certain types of light aren't always that good. So if you have very small windows uh, in a very large wall where, where you have strong light coming through, then you can often get bad glare and that's not a sort of soft comforting light it's quite an aggressive light and and makes it quite hard to focus sometimes or you'll look at the light and then you'll look away and suddenly everything gets dark so I don't think you can have too much light but you need a light that's kind of consistent and uh, and as I said it can it can change but it needs to kind of change in a natural way through the day I think having light that's natural uh, as much as is possible is is absolutely the best kind of light Uh, and so having rooms without windows for example um, can be very oppressive and most people uh, even if they don't realize it like to be in rooms where there there's good light and there's good natural light and it's a a comforting light rather than than a very strong piercing light. Ben do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm just thinking back from what Sadie's saying to sort of my days at university, really. And um, I think we had in, in my house, I lived in in third year, we had a pair of curtains in our living room that I'm not sure if they ever got drawn in the entire year. So <laughs> um, it sounds like such an obvious one, but I suppose that is something that people can do at home just to make sure, you know, they are getting enough exposure to like it's first thing in the morning when you get up, do get those curtains open straight away and, and get light in because, um, I've certainly been guilty in the past of, of not doing that. Um, but yeah, it's absolutely right. What everything Sadie was saying really, like it's just such an important, such an important aspect of the environment. I made it the first chapter in my book. Um, and actually we, we at Asale did a recent survey and I know Quality of Life Foundation did a, a survey as well. So it'd be interesting to see how the results kind of compare when it comes to daylight. But um, we we were asking people what they really valued about their home environment at the moment, and and good daylight was one of the top answers um, that people gave. So clearly, people out there are finding it really important, and we know it plays a really important role in terms of release of chemicals in our brain and hormones, which affect things like our sleep patterns and um, growth and development and all these kind of things. So um, actually, making sure we get enough daylight is fundamental to to good physical and mental health. 
Uh, absolutely. And there's so much written about circadian rhythms and making sure that your body's exposed and all that kind of thing, isn't there? Yeah. Um, I wanted to go back to the comment that you made about Marie Kondo because she drives me sort of mad, really. And I, <laughs> I don't live in a very tidy way, so that's probably why. And I do sometimes lay awake thinking, well, am I stressed because my bras are ordered properly or something in my drawer? Do messy homes actually matter? Uh, yeah, they, they really do, actually. So a study that I'm always harping on about is uh, was a, a very interesting one where um, researchers looked at the levels of cortisol in people's saliva. So um, cortisol is a stress hormone and you can measure it really, really easily by just doing a saliva swab from somebody. Um, and they, they put people in a range of environments from very tidy spaces to very messy spaces because they were, as per your question, they were really interested in seeing if there was some sort of connection between mess and stress. And what they found was that as the spaces got messier, perhaps unsurprisingly, the level of cortisol rose in people's saliva samples. So it's probably unsurprising that when we come home in the evening from, from work, say, and um, our house is a, is a tip, there's stuff everywhere and, you know, things are all, all over all the surfaces, then we do naturally feel more stress and we, we naturally seem to like order. We seem to like tidiness. Um, and that's not to say, you know, that there's there's other research which looks at um, the impact of mess and creativity. So, for example, actually, a lot of people during the daytime while they're working, they quite like to have a messy environment. They like to have everything to hand. And so I'm not saying we shouldn't ever have mess. We, we shouldn't ever be allowed to kind of surround ourselves with chaos. But at the same time, it's really important that we we do have kind of clean, tidy environments when we can and when we want to relax, which is one of the reasons why storage is actually so important in homes. And I think it can be quite an overlooked um, aspect of, of design, but storage, it's not very glamorous, but actually it's what makes a home livable. It's what makes a home pleasant to inhabit. And just actually a question related to that, does the messiness relate to other people's messiness? Because I always find I'm much more stressed out by my partner's mess than my own. <laughs> Is there science behind that? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, perhaps I think just really it would come back to that issue of control and you know, um, we, we know that people feel um, comforted by having more control, even if it's just perceived control. So a good example of that is a lot of the traffic light buttons that we have both in London and New York, they don't actually do anything. Um, and they, they just they took most of them away in New York, but they found that actually people preferred having the control or perceived control of pressing a pedestrian crossing button uh -huh. and being able to change the lights, even though they weren't doing anything. So I think, again, it might be that kind of perceived control, the idea that, well, it's fine for you if it's your mess, because at any time you can put that stuff away, you can do with it what you want. But when it's your partners or your housemates or your whoever it might be, then, yeah, you, you feel like you have less control over that mess. And obviously it brings with it certain anxieties as well of, am I going to have to have a difficult conversation with this person about their mess? And, <laughs> you know, then that leads to kind of ruminative thinking about, um, you know, the, that, that horrible what if question where, um, I don't know if, if you're anything like me, but I tend to kind of have lots of arguments with my head in my head with people about things that haven't even happened yet, <laughs> uh, which is not a very nice path to go down. No, that doesn't sound particularly good. <laughs> Sadie, I know that you lived in a cooperative as a child and I'm wondering, did you see uh, arguments about the environment play out amongst the people that you lived with? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, the answer is no, but that might be my age. Um, although I, I sort of not only lived there, but grew up there and brought my family up there. Ah, okay. The interesting thing about how I lived was that we didn't rely on a 
sort of nuclear family. So we, we all lived in a very big house and it was divided up into separate apartments for, for those families and those people who lived on their own would share bathrooms and kitchens and so forth. But as, as a family, I think that... Um, we lived in the same way that many people would live. You know, we all had challenges, but we had very small apartments uh, on the understanding that uh, other communal spaces were shared. So we had to actually live in a very compact and tidy way <laughs> um, uh, because there just wasn't that much space. <laughs> because because you had other other spaces to go to that were your own, so you had you had communal spaces, but you also had lots of opportunity for private spaces. Uh, bedrooms tended to just be where you slept rather than nowadays that's where kids go to do their homework and all, all of those sorts of things if they're lucky enough to have a, their own bedroom. So, so you sort of learn to sort of live with each other um, as most families do, I think. But you also, what, what was more important, I think, was actually learning to look after people and a sense of belonging and togetherness which like a sense of control is also something that improves your quality of life so the research that we've done says that feeling cared for and belonging and togetherness are two things that really are important to making you feel as if you have a quality you know really wonderful quality of life so if we can work out many of us I think are having to live in a situation where we are 100% spending all of our time (laughs) you know, with with your partner or your family in a way that you haven't had because you can go to work and uh, you can do all these other things. And actually relationships and the way that you have to navigate around a space, particularly if it's small and there's a lot of you, you know, you're, you're having to adjust what you do and how you share. Mm. And, and, you know, as I was saying earlier, I, I live with my partner, and he and I, if, you know, one of us has to go and sit in the laundry room or the, the laundry cupboard in order to make a Skype call because we have an open plan and only one of us can speak loudly at a time. So we've ha- we have to negotiate. You're not sitting on laundry right now, are you, Sadie? No, I'm not. But <laughs> <laughs> so so all, all of those things are about uh, consensus and about negotiation and about making sure that you're you're looking after other people uh, you know, in who are living in that same environment as you, in order that everybody can be a little bit happier. Yeah, I'm. I'm currently in a um, 39 meter squared um, apartment, kind of starter home. Um, my my first flat I, I bought um, a couple of years ago with my fiance, and we've we've obviously been holed up in here for coming up three months now. And she's the, the wedding hasn't been cancelled by her yet, which is good news. So I'm happy to report <laughs> that. But yeah, that idea of community uh, is. It's so interesting and I think it's something that's probably overlooked a bit in this country where we we don't have that kind of model of living which you were talking about, Sadie, that, that frequently and obviously we, we tend to associate that more with kind of Mediterranean uh, lifestyles, like big family groups living together, but we know the impact of loneliness is actually huge on people's health. So um, in, in a sense of it can be as bad for you physically as um, things like obesity and smoking actually. So um it's it's something i think we we need to try and improve within architecture as well design more sociable spaces those things you were talking about at the start that kind of um accidental socialization where you deliberately design less homes off a stair course so people bump into each other more and have those chance encounters um and sadly that's something we have kind of all lost at the moment due to covid um so i think trying to rem- you know, remember that 
the importance of that socialization and actually now that we are allowed to start seeing people as well not try try not to feel too guilty when we when we do go out and visit people and remember that it's actually really quite important for us yeah i think that's probably going to been one of the most shocking elements of COVID for everybody, hasn't it? Just how much we need other people and how much we want to spend time with them. And it's interesting what you say about the the need for good communal spaces, referring back to what you mentioned, Sadie, because obviously we know that the single population of the UK is growing and so that more and more people are living by themselves. So it sounds like those spaces are going to become even more important. Yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, and they go often they go sort of hand in hand with green spaces or outdoor spaces, um, you know, as well as enclosed spaces. If you think about developments that are being built at the moment, you know, many have communal spaces that can be booked or can have a party room or having that flexibility, having having spaces where you can come together as a group. Uh, I think are really important, whether that be inside spaces or whether or not you think about if you are lucky enough to have a communal garden, you know, making sure that everybody feels comfortable there, that kids can play football there, but also you can have somebody who just wants to go and sit quietly and read or, you know, so you need lots of different types of spaces (laughs) um, rather than just one flat open field. So I think it's, you know, designers do need to, to... design in the ability for lots of different types of uh, activity uh, which means that lots of different types of people will begin to use it because they'll feel comfortable using it and they'll they'll see that a little bit of it belongs to to them (laughs) um, or 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 allows them to do the things that they feel comfortable doing there's there's a lot to be said about really you know just really thinking about a day in the life of five or six different types of um, people and their needs and and how by negotiation, uh, by perhaps a little bit of compromise now and again, but but you can um, encourage all of uh, all of those um, activities to, ha- to happen. So it's really about thinking about the multiple needs of people sharing some space in many ways. A space can't always deal with everybody's wishes <laughs> but but I think you can if you've thought about what they might might be you you can definitely start to design those in I, I think and and uh, and of course you need to make sure that you've asked you know before before you do that designing it's a good it's a good idea to actually ask people what it is that they want and how and you know how you might help um design those things in yeah definitely getting permission from everybody sounds like a good idea Ben I just wanted to finish off really by asking you you know you you talked at the beginning of how it was some of your own mental health difficulties that had inspired your interest in this work what were some of the things that you learn and that you would say to other people if they were struggling maybe with anxiety that they should pay attention to in their homes that's a really interesting one actually um well as as I said to you I at the time, uh, I was kind of living in a shared house, so a lot of those issues that we've already touched upon will be quite relevant. Um, things like mess, things like not opening the curtains, probably not necessarily being as, uh, yeah, as, t- as tidy as we should have been. But in terms of you know things that you can do to support your own mental health in your home, um, you know we've obviously touched upon things like nature as well. Activity is so so important. Staying active and, and exercising. So. 
um, trying to find a way that you can do that within your home at the moment, because um, looking out my window now, and we're very much in the middle of British summer, which means it's kind of lightly drizzling. So uh, finding ways that you can actually exercise in your own home of what that's meant for us is even though we only live in a small flat, um, just finding a way that we can adapt the living room. So very quickly, just push all the furniture out to the edges and it becomes like our, our home gym. Um, and it's important that you can find a way to, to do that quite quickly and easily, because if it's a faff or if it's hassle, you know, we've all been in that situation where we, we're, as humans, we're very good at finding excuses not to uh, not to exercise. So you need to make it kind of as excuse free as possible. And uh, yeah, that, that whole thing I was talking about of control, really making sure that you take control of your environment. And that can be something as simple as um, keeping all of your stuff on a tray, like all your work stuff, like your laptop, your pens, all that stuff your notebook on a big tray and then at the end of the day you can just fold down your laptop slide that tray away somewhere put even put it you know in a different room so that actually you are just switching off at the end of the day um, but fundamentally one thing I always say is as, as much as I'm trying to spread the word that buildings can impact mental health fundamentally there's so so many other things that impact our mental health and um, really it's about respecting yourself I got myself into that situation because I was actually putting my my work um, and the needs of other people ahead of my own needs. Um, so really, that's why I you know became a massive workaholic um, and uh, didn't really realise the importance of my own downtime. And I, I associated a lot of guilt with kind of relaxation and, and stopping working. Um, so really remembering that your own downtime is important, particularly right now. Um, and, and also just talking to people. If you're having a difficult time, open up to someone and tell them because while it's it's normally pretty most people find it quite scary to do that and they worry that they about the kind of response they'll get but actually from my own experience when you start talking to people about the fact that you're struggling or you're having a tough time all you get back from people is kindness and compassion and love so that really is the key message i think so if you want to make sure your home supports your mental well-being do tidy up or you'll increase your cortisol levels. If you don't have a dedicated working from home space, at least push the furniture back in a different arrangement to separate your work days from relaxation time. Do be sure to bring some nature inside. Plants are a proven mood booster. Do bother about the details. It's okay to care about pictures and cushions. Do think about how your home connects you to other people outside of it. Do consult the other people you live with about how the space works for them. Oh, and finally, don't forget to open all the curtains as soon as you get out of bed. And don't forget, if you want to know how happy your home is, why not take the Resi test? Just go to resi.co.uk forward slash happy underscore homes. Bye for now.